So last week, uh, we finished up, we did basically that first, uh, 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 the signs in Israel, we had to spread out over two weeks. And I wanted to show you a couple more pictures, though, that kind of went along what's going on in Israel uh, right now. I talked about the Temple Institute and the fact that the Temple Institute is there to rebuild the temple on the Temple Mount. And right now, they have already rebuilt the altar. And here's some pictures uh, that show you the completed altar that will be transferred over to the temple once it's built. And that's a rabbi that's uh, basically demonstrating how the temple will be, or the uh, altar will be used and, and work. Uh, so that just shows you that they're in the, they're in the midst of, of getting this done. Also, I had the question last week if I thought that the Al-Aqsa Mosque would be there uh, or if the temple would take its place. And I, you know, I've always felt like the temple would take its place and out the, the mosque would, would be torn down. But there are, there's also a theory out there that both of those will exist side by side. And they've done a rendering to show what that will look like. Um, and of course, the mosque is on the left and the temple is on the right. And that would all fit there on the temple mount. So that could happen. And with you know the way that the Antichrist is gonna work and how he's gonna try for uh, you know a little bit of universalism and kind of bring in all the different faiths together, wouldn't be surprised if, if uh, that didn't happen, if they didn't share uh, the temple mount. But who knows? Uh, who knows exactly what will happen? But tonight we're going to talk about the rapture. Uh, so this is actually part two, but it's our third third part for us because we I talked too long and, and the first one took two weeks instead of one. Uh, but tonight is going to be signs in our culture. And specifically, I said we're going to talk a lot about the rapture, uh, and we're going to get you to feel very comfortable about where you are as a, as a Christ follower when it comes to the end times. Now, when we, when we talk about the rapture of the church, it's this famous word that people have been talking about over the years that describes what is going to happen to believers right before the tribulation begins. And it, so, so you, if you did a word search in, in, in the Bible, you're not going to find the word rapture, because rapture means to be caught up, okay? So it's a descriptive word of what's going to happen to us. And if you're living with Jesus, if you're living when Jesus comes, that means you will never die. We talked about that over the last couple of weeks. Before this generation, everyone that lived also died except for two people. Do you remember the two people in the Bible that did not die in the Old Testament? Remember? Enoch and Elijah, Okay. Now, I believe, and I got this question a few weeks ago, too, of, uh, uh, as far as who do I believe will be the two witnesses in the tribulation, I believe that these two men will be the two witnesses in the tribulation, Enoch and Elijah. Now, the witnesses in the tribulation are going to be sent by God, and they are going to basically uh, be preaching the word of God uh, in Jerusalem, and nobody will be able to touch them. Uh, the Antichrist won't be able to hurt them. Nobody will be able to hurt them. In fact, anybody that comes against them, the Bible says that they will breathe fire and destroy anyone that comes against them. Until about three and a half years in, when the Antichrist kills the two witnesses, they're left on the streets for three days, and then they're resurrected. So that will actually happen in the tribulation. And I believe that definitely those are the two guys, you know, with, you know, with, within as, as definite as I can be. I think those are going to be the two men uh, that will be the witnesses because they didn't die. Uh, and, and they're the only two people in history that didn't die. So uh, there will be, though, a group of people in this generation that will not die like them which is really cool. First Thessalonians 4, 15 says, I can tell you this directly from the Lord. We who are still living when the Lord returns will not rise to meet him ahead of those who are in their graves. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout, with the call of the archangel, 
and with the trumpet call of God. First, all the Christians who have died will rise from their graves. Then together with them, we who are still alive and remain on the earth will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and remain with him forever. So comfort and encourage each other with these words. So the scripture says there that those that know the, known the Lord and have died will be called from the grave to meet him in the air, and then we will be called as well. And according to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, this will happen within a twinkling of an eye. How fast is a twinkling of an eye? Of an eye? One fortieth of a second. That's how quickly it'll happen. One moment we're going to be here. The next moment we're going to be with Jesus. And I believe that this can happen at any time. At any time. We are living at the end times. And I believe it will be uh, one of the next major prophetic events. Now, when Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians, it upset a lot of people. Because they thought that the rapture had come and that they had been left behind. So in the book of 2 Thessalonians, Paul comes back trying to comfort the people who had misunderstood him the first time. And he tells them basically that Jesus has not come yet and they've not been left behind. He then gives them a graphic view of what the world is going to look like when Jesus returns. And we're gonna look at three scenes from the book of 2 Thessalonians where Paul is talking about the end times. So scene one. Scene one, this is what the world is going to look like at the end times. It, the world is going to be in rebellion to God with a man of sin ready to lead them. 2 Thessalonians 2.1 says, And now, brothers and sisters, let us tell you about the coming again of our Lord Jesus Christ and how we will be, able, we will be gathered together to meet him. Please don't be so easily shaken and troubled by those who say that the day of the Lord has already begun. Even if they claim to have had a vision, a revelation, or a letter supposedly from us, don't believe them. Don't be fooled by what they say. So he's saying, anybody that's told you that it's already come, it hasn't, don't believe those people. For that day will not come until there's a great rebellion against God and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the one who brings uh, destruction. We will, he will exalt himself and defy every God there is and tear down every object of adoration and worship. He will position himself in the temple of God, claiming that he himself is God. So the Apostle Paul is saying, don't worry, Jesus has not come yet. He's not going to come until there's a worldwide falling away from the truth, a rejection of biblical Christianity. Now, this guy, this Antichrist, is a man that I believe will be possessed by Lucifer himself to fulfill the prophecies of the Bible. This man's mission is the same as Satan's. It is to steal and kill and to destroy so the Antichrist is the everything opposite of what Christ was in Scripture. Now, he's going to do miracles, and he's going to do different things like Christ, but he is going to be Lucifer uh, on this earth. And I believe that the prophecy that is written by Paul and Thessalonians is coming true in our day, and we see it in two specific ways. Two specific ways. First is apostasy in the world. Apostasy means a renunciation of religious faith. We're seeing that in the world today. Now, when I was a kid, I remember uh, going through grade school uh, and, and uh, going in, and I, I could see in every school that we went to, whether we were going around and playing basketball or playing football, every school had a um, plaque of the Ten Commandments in it. You could see it at every school. But in 1980, those plaques were forced by the government to come down. Now, I talked to my parents, and I talked to them about when they were growing up, and they said, you know, uh, Tim, when we grew up, uh, we started off the day in our class with prayer. And not only would they pray, or the teacher would pray, but they would pray in Jesus' name. 
But in 1962, prayer was taken out of schools. And as a result of that, a lot of really, thing, really bad things have happened within our school systems. When you take God out of school, you open yourself up to some things. But I remember even when I was a kid that I, you kind of assumed that everybody was a Christian. I mean, I just assumed that every, every one of my teachers were Christians. And, and even though we didn't go all to the same church, we all went to different churches. But there was just that, you know, just that feeling, just that sense that for the most part, the people that I was around were, were believers. And I think that probably for most of us, when we think about our childhood, that was the case. But when you took prayer out of school, you took the Ten Commandments out of school, things begin to change. And right now, we have a rejection of biblical morality in this society that we live in. We're living in an opposed Christian society and an opposed biblical society. And that has really all happened within this last generation. The Bible is under open attack right now. The Bible is now being attacked even in the military. You know, we think about the military, and the military has always had such a strong uh, emphasis on, you know, on God first. I mean, the Marine Corps was like God Family Corps, right? That was that, that's their that's their motto. But in February, on February 1st, 2014, Marine Lance Corporal Monica Sterling was court-martialed for displaying a passage of Scripture on her computer that said, no weapon formed against us shall prosper. She was ordered to remove it. She said she would not because it was for her religious freedom. They court-martialed her for it. And that is just one account. It's happened over and over again where uh, different people have been court-martialed uh, due to the fact that they're showing their, uh, their, their love for the Lord. The Bible is considered hate speech now by many. There's a dramatic rise in atheism in America and around the world. And there has been an increase in the last 50 years, but especially in the last five years in the world against Christians and biblical principles. It is, it's crazy. We'd, uh, when we opened up 4640, uh, we had a lot of students that were just so excited about it that they were going invite and inviting their friends. And uh, not only did we have students that were doing that, but we had a lot of teachers that were doing that. They knew what a great evangelistic tool that was going to be. And so they went and they were inviting kids to come to our youth group because we have several teachers that work on our 4640 staff. Well, uh, the atheist group here in town got wind of that and they flipped out. I mean, they were writing letters to the editor and they were calling us and chewing us out. And it was like, a, a, you know, a, 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 um, an effort this this uh, effort of uh, this group to come against us, and it was it was just nuts. And of course, anytime somebody comes against us like that, then we know that we're doing the right thing. But uh, athe atheists are interesting because atheists don't believe in anything. They don't believe that there's a god, which is weird because they they have a problem with me believing that there's a god. Have you ever thought about that? How crazy that is, because it's spiritually motivated. The devil wants to use people to come against us. And we're seeing more and more of that all the time uh, in, in, within, uh, within the world. And then the second way where we're going to see the world fall apart is this apostasy in the church. Now, Jesus prophesied that when he returned, that only 50% of the church would be, or that 50% of the church would be lost. Now, you might think, well, you're saying like 50% of the denominations. No, 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 no. 50% of the people in churches don't know the Lord. They don't, they, they've not received him as their savior. And it's interesting because there's just this movement out there that says, you know what, if, as long as you live right and part of living right is going to church, then you're going to go to heaven. 
And it is amazing because, you know, one of the things that we do uh, here at Fellowship is we have everybody uh, uh, turn in an application before they can serve in ministry. We do background checks uh, before they serve in ministry. We have some pretty uh, uh, specific questions that we ask about a person's salvation experience as well as certain things that they believe. And we really noticed um, when we opened up 4640, uh, because we had had recruited so many workers. I think we had about 120 or 130 new workers within the ministry, which was just really, really great. But as we got those applications, it was amazing how many people hadn't really even said the salvation prayer before. And you always know when you're talking to somebody that says that they're a Christian and you ask them about their salvation experience, they'll, they'll respond this way if they don't really know the Lord. They'll, they'll always say, well, I've kind of always known the Lord. I've kind of always been a Christian. And it's that whole universalism movement out there that's just telling people, hey, just live right and you'll be okay. And that is very, very much what is happening. And it's happening within all of our churches, even the Christian churches, the life-giving churches. And so that's why it's very important that we, you know, we sat down with every one of those, those people and we made sure that we led them to the Lord before they served. Because we don't, you know, we don't want to have that kind of percentage, uh, of course, in, within our church. Now, Jesus gave three parables about what the world would look like when he returned, specifically about uh, this 50% peop of people being lost within the church. Matthew 25, verse 1 says, The kingdom of heaven can be illustrated by the story of ten bridesmaids who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The five who were foolish took no oil with, uh, for their, their lamps, but the other five were wise enough to take extra, uh, along extra oil. When the bridegroom was delayed, they all lay down and slept. At midnight, they were roused by the shout, look, the bridegroom is coming. Come out and welcome him. Of course, the bridegroom is Jesus. All the bridesmaids got up and prepared their lamps. Then the five foolish ones asked the others, please give us some of your oil because our lamps are going out. But the others replied, we don't have enough for all of us. Go to a shop and buy some for yourselves. But while they were gone to buy oil, the bridegroom came and those who were ready went in with him to be to the marriage feast and the door was locked. Later, when the other five bridesmaids returned, they stood outside calling, sir, open the door for us. But he called back, I don't know you. So stay awake and be prepared because you do not know the day or hour of my return. Now, even in this scripture, Jesus is talking about the season. He's saying, be aware of the season. Don't be caught. Now, Jesus didn't know, Jesus said in that scripture, you're not gonna know the day or hour, but he does say, you better know the season. And these 10 virgins in the story are, uh, 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 are, are the church and the bridegroom is Jesus. Jesus says, when I come, half the church will be ready and the other half won't. So it's important for us to be ready. Half of those that believe that they are saved, that they are Christians, are not. Now, we get this fear, you know, the devil will come against you and make you think, are you saved, are you not saved? As I said uh, a couple of weeks ago, receive him as your savior. So you're supposed to call on the name of the Lord that you believe in him. You ask him for forgiveness for your sins. You're saved, okay? So you're going to be in the rapture. But a lot of people have not made that choice. Now, this is happening right before our eyes in the church. And there are tons of denominations out there that are ignoring the clear teachings of Scripture. 
specifically in two areas. And before I go into this, I want to make sure that I preface what I'm about to say, because if, if, if we're not careful, uh, you know, I can come off like I'm trying to judge people, when in reality, I'm judging the sin. And the Bible talks about the fact, judge not lest you be judged. So we're not to judge people, but scripture is there so we can judge the sin. We need to know what is right and what is wrong. And there's two things that are sneaking into the church right now uh, as, as basically just the norm that is against Scripture completely. The first of which is abortion. Now, I know there's so many people out there that have had abortions. They've made the choice maybe to have an abortion when they were younger. And so uh, please know that if you've made that choice and you've asked for forgiveness for it, you were covered by the blood of Jesus and he loves you. So that's a, it, was, it was a mistake. It was a poor choice. But what has happened is be, abortion has become so mainstream. It's, it's not even about a moral issue anymore. It's a political issue. It's about pro-choice versus um, pro-life and, you know, who's running on what, uh, uh, what as far as a, a political candidate and, and are, you know, do they believe in abortion? Do they not believe in abortion? And it's made us desensitized to it. We kind of get like, oh, gosh, I'm tired of hearing it. But the reality of what is happening in our world and what is happening in our church is, is crazy. There are denominations out there now that are supporting pro-choice groups and actually funding abortion clinics. That is happening right now. Now, I think for us to come back to reality, we need to understand how widespread this is. On the internet, there is a abortion counter that is done by, I believe it's a Christian organization. This is what it looks like, and it streams live. Now, this is not a live stream. Uh, this is just a picture we took of the page yesterday. Know that the numbers have changed since then. But as of yesterday in the United States, in one day, and this was done about one or two o'clock in the afternoon, there had been 2,177 abortions. Since Roe versus Wade, 1973, there's been 58,680, or 58,682,283 abortions. 6.9 uh, 6 million by Planned Parenthood since 1970. Um, by Planned Parenthood this year, 28,000. United States this year, 96,000. Uh, the U.S. this year, after a 16 weeks gestation, so after they've been already pregnant for 16 weeks, 4,600. Now, they put this here because one of the main arguments uh, for those that are pro-abortion, they always say this. It always becomes this political question. You're telling me that for those that have been raped or have had incest uh, perpetrated on them, that you're not going to allow them to get uh, an abortion? Know that statistically, it is very rare that a woman will conceive when they're raped or there's incest because their body is being traumatized so they don't conceive. You'll see here that since the beginning of the year, there's only been 931 abortions due to rape or incest in comparison to how many there's actually been. Now, notice this. Worldwide since 1980, 1,403,000 or 403,523,175. billion abortions. Now, during Nazi Germany, World War II, six million Jews were murdered, and that was called the Holocaust. What do we call this? There's only seven billion people on the planet, 
And we have killed 1.4 billion babies since 1980. Like, it, but you know what? We become numb to it. it just, we're just, we're numb to it. We just hear it all the time. And, and now we have churches that are backing this. The second big issue, and it's all over the news, and it's in state politics as well as federal uh, politics, is gay marriage and homosexuality, right? Know this. I have close family members that are gay. I love gay people. I love them. But you're supposed to love the person and hate the sin. And right now, there are denominations that are imploding because they're allowing professed gay pastors to run churches. We're seeing it. The Episcopals were the first. Uh, the Presbyterians are going through it right now. And it's causing the, the denominations to implode and divide. It is an absolute mess. Well, in 2000, Rebecca and I were asked to come and minister uh, at a uh, conference. It was a deliverance conference at a church, and it was a specific deliverance conference for those that were struggling with sexual addictions. And we had a speaker that came that was like a keynote speaker, and he was an Episcopal pastor that had, came, had come out of the gay culture. So he was gay. Uh, he got saved. Uh, he renounced that, and, and then he got married, and, and he's a, 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 a straight priest now. Um, and Episcopals can have, Episcopal priests can have wives. And so he uh, spoke on this issue, and this was, this was 2000, and it wasn't, you know, right then it wasn't on the radar. And he said, let me tell you what the Episcopal church is about ready to do. And when they do it, it's gonna cause our denomination to implode. And so he told us what was about to happen. And it was shocking at that time, and that was only 15 years ago. But what he did was he talked about how organized and how strategic the gay movement is. And he read from some documents that were basically the platform and the strategy for uh, activists in the homosexual community. And he read from what, they, what, what is called the Homosexual Manifesto. Have you, have you ever heard of this? So this was written in 1970, or uh, yes, 1973, I believe. No, actually, yeah, I know it was, and then it was printed in. It's about 1973 by a gay revolutionary by the name of Michael Swift, and then it was printed uh, in uh, a gay community news. And this was the theme for the gay community, and this was just three paragraphs from it, and I want to read it to you. He says, we shall, talking about the gay culture, we shall sodomize your sons, emblems of your feeble masculinity, of your shallow dreams and vulgar lies. We shall seduce them in your schools, in your dormitories, in your gymnasiums, in your locker rooms, in your sports arenas, in your seminaries, in your youth groups, in your movie theaters, bathrooms, in your army bunkhouses, in your truck stops, in your all-male clubs, in your houses of Congress. Wherever men are with men together, your sons shall become our minions and do our bidding. They will be recast in our image. They will come to crave and adore us. Women, you cry for freedom. You say you are no longer satisfied with men. They make you unhappy. We connoisseurs of masculine face, the masculine physique shall take your men from you then. We will amuse them. We will instruct them. We will embrace them when they weep. Women, you say you wish to live with each other instead of men, then go and be with each other. 
We shall give your men pleasures they have never known because we are foremost men too. And only one man knows how truly to please another man. Only one man can understand the depth and feeling, the mind and the body of another man. All laws banning homosexual activity will be revoked. Instead, legislation shall be passed which engenders love between men. All homosexuals must stand together as brothers. We must be united artistically, philosophically, socially, politically, and financially. We will triumph only when we present a common face to the vicious heterosexual enemy. So that was their manifesto, and it goes on. That's just the first few paragraphs. Then from that was written in 1972 on a gay rights uh, platform in the National Coalition of Gay Organizations, a strategy to infiltrate government and to change laws at the federal level and the state level. That started in 1972. They've been very aggressive since then. Then, from those platforms, this next document was written called The Overhauling of Straight America. It was published in Guide Magazine in 87. This is the blueprint for the now global homosexual propaganda campaign to replace marriage-based society with a culture of sexual anarchy. This article states the gay goals and tactics with such alarming frankness, it's going to blow you away. Several parts, but I'm just going to read you a a few. The first says that they need to talk about gays and gayness as loudly and as often as possible. It says, the principle behind this advice is simple. Almost any behavior begins to look normal if you are exposed to enough of it at close quarters and among your acquaintances. So their goal is to make it look normal. The way to benumb raw sensitivities about homosexuality is to have a lot of people talk a great deal about the subject in a neutral or supportive way. Open and frank talk uh, makes the subject seem less uh, uh, furtive, uh, alien, and sinful, more above board. Constant talk builds the impression that public opinion is at least divided on the subject and that the sizable segment accepts or even practices homosexuality. Even debates between opponents and defenders serves the purpose of desensitizing so long as respectable gays are front and center to make their own pitch. The main thing is to talk about gayness until the issue becomes thoroughly tiresome. The average American household watches over seven hours of TV daily. Those hours open up a gateway into the private world of straights, calling us straights, through which a Trojan horse might be passed. So far, gay Hollywood has provided our best covert weapon in the battle to desensitize the mainstream Bit by bit over the past 10 years, gay characters and gay themes have been introduced into TV programs and films, though often that has been done to achieve comedic and ridiculous effects. On the whole, the impact has been encouraging. Now, this was in 87. Have we seen an increase of this? Can you watch a sitcom or a drama that does not have a gay character? You can't. Can you watch a reality show that does not have a gay character? Now, you watch Survivor, you watch The Amazing Race, you watch, you know, any of those competition-based reality shows, and there's usually 10 to maybe 16 contestants, and there's always one to two homosexuals that are represented on those shows, always. Do you guys know statistically how many gay people there are in the world, statistically? They present it as one in 10 
it's one in a hundred. One in a hundred. But it has been inundated into our society and using media. Now listen to this. When conservative churches condemn gays, there are only two things we can do to confound the homophobia of true believers. First, we can use talk, use talk to muddy the moral waters. This means publicizing support for gays by more moderate churches, raising theological objections of our own about conservative interpretations of biblical teaching. If you get online right now and you search uh, 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 what the Bible says about homosexuals, you will be blown away of how this movement has changed scripture or tries to change theology. First of which, what they say is that, because like the biggest scripture you'll find in there is in Leviticus, and it talks about the fact that, uh, that God sees homosexuality as an abomination. It says, men shall not may with, lay with men as a man lays with a woman. This is an abomination to the Lord. But what they say is it's Levitical law. So there's a lot of stuff in Levitical law that, that we don't follow anymore. So that's just kind of an old teaching. So that gets thrown aside. They talk about the, uh, the sin in Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember when um, Lot was rescued out of Sodom and Gomorrah? Um, when the angels went to deliver the message that they needed to get out of Sodom, uh, then the, all of the, there was a group of, of men, townsmen, that wanted, that came and demanded to be able to have sex with those two angels. The homosexual, and of course Sodom was destroyed. The homosexual teaching on that is that God wasn't upset because men were wanting to have sex with men. He was upset because men were wanting to rape men. If it would have been, you know, if they would have been okay with it, then it, it would have been fine. So they're twisting the scripture enough. They also, another, uh, another teaching that is out there is that Jonathan and David were actually lovers that that intimate relationship that talks about there that was that was not a that was not a um, that was actually a sexual relationship. So they've done they've done this, raising theological objections of our own about conservative interpretations of biblical teachings and exposing hatred and inconsistency. Second, we can undermine the moral authority of homophobic churches by portraying them as antiquated backwaters badly out of step with the times and with uh, the latest findings of psychology. Against the mighty pull of, the inst of institutional religion, one must set up the mightier draw of science and public, public opinion, the shield and sword of that accursed secular humanism. Such an unholy alliance has worked well against churches before on such topics as divorce and abortion. With enough open talk about the prevalence and acceptability of homosexuality, the allegiance can work again here. Then it goes on to say that one of the goals is for them to portray gays as victims and not as aggressive challengers. In any campaign to win over the public, gays must be cast as victims in need of protection so that the straights will be inclined to, by reflex, to assume the role of protector. It goes on and on, their strategy. And the crazy thing is, since 1973, they've done a really good job, and the majority of this, they've done. It's strategic. And it's infiltrating churches now uh, the belief that uh, to be gay, you're born that way. You're born that way. Guys, you are not born that way. Yeah, are, are we born with the Adamic nature of sin? Yeah, but it doesn't mean that you just go out and do whatever you want. If God was to make 
homosexuals, homosexuals from the time of birth and want them to live that way. Why is there no gay marriages in the Bible? And then why would he call it an abomination? He wouldn't create somebody some way and say, now you're an abomination, right? But there's this movement out there that that is saying that, no, they're born that way. They can't help it. And that is creeping into the church to the point now where these denominations are imploding. Now, I know at Fellowship, we can kind of live in our, our little Christian bubble, and we don't realize the things that are happening in churches and in denominations across the country. We don't, we don't see these things, but these are the things that are happening, and it's all prophetic. Often, churches don't believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. Half of churches don't believe in a literal hell or a literal devil. I can't tell you how many times we get applications in and, and they don't check that there's really a hell or that they believe in a devil. If there's no hell and there's no devil, then what the hell are we doing? <laughs> we want to keep people out of hell. But that's a movement. That's a movement that's going on right now. Many churches today believe in universalism, which means that Jesus is not the, is the, isn't the only way to get to heaven. That's, that's something else. It's just like, well, you know, if, yeah, I mean, I can see where Christians would go to heaven. And, but, 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 you know, Muslims, like, they really believe in what they believe. And so, so if that's the case, then, you know, they probably go to heaven too. That's universalism. I had a guy one time that was very much in, in, into universalism. He was a world traveler. He believed that he was really smart. And um, he, uh, we started down this road, this conversation about religion, and I, I, uh, this came up, this whole universalism thing came, comes up. And he says um, to me, I tell him, I says, so you believe that Jesus is the, uh, is, is the way to get to heaven, right? Absolutely. But he says, I also believe that uh, Buddha was the Jesus to the Asians, that, uh, that Allah was, uh, Muhammad was the, was the Jesus to the Muslims. And he starts going down that Hindu was this and all this. And I'm like, well, but, okay, let's say that's true. Then why are the messages of those religions so vastly different? You, you think if God would have done that, he would have kept the message the same. To be Buddhist, there is, there's no way for a Buddhist in their own belief that to be a good Buddhist, you go to heaven. They don't even believe in that. The Hindu religion, if you study it, you will go, I can't believe any sane person could believe these things. It is crazy what, what, the, what Hindus believe. Um, there's great resources out there on that. But universalism is, is a big thing. Um, Now, Paul said that Jesus hasn't come yet and he won't come until there's a great apostasy in this world and in the church. And we are seeing that. We're seeing that big time. Then scene two that he describes. This is the turning point here. This is the rapture of the church. And this is what to get excited about. Okay, we've kind of talked about how the world's falling apart, how churches are falling apart. This is the cool part. This is the rapture of the church in 2 Thessalonians 2, 5 through 8. Don't you remember that I told you this when I was with you and you know what is holding him back, okay? Something talks, keeps talking about that. Something's holding him back. For he can be revealed only when his time comes. For this lawlessness is already at work secretly and it will remain secret until the one is holding it back, steps out of the way. Then the man of lawlessness will be revealed, that's the Antichrist, whom the Lord Jesus will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. So 
The apostle Paul says there's going to be a great falling away from the truth. Then he says that the one who now restrains will be taken away. Who's the one that restrains? The Holy Spirit in the church. The Holy Spirit in the church. When we are raptured, that restraining force in the world is taken away. Can you imagine what the world's gonna look like when the church is gone? Because fellowship church and life-giving churches like it are a restraining force in this world against evil. Our, Our mission statement has always been to connect the unconnected to Jesus Christ and together grow in full devotion to him. We're about getting people saved and discipling them. But when that's gone, The marriage ministry of Fellowship Church is a restraining force against divorce in this world. Our restoration ministry is a restraining force right now against the kingdom of darkness trying to work in people's lives. As dark as this world is right now, can you imagine what it's gonna be like when we're gone? Yet this is exactly what the world will look like when the rapture happens. Now, I believe that the Antichrist will not be revealed until after the rapture or right before. I always get the question, who do you think he is? <laughs> the truth is, there's a lot of really good candidates, right? <laughs> really good ones. Now, we know from prophecy that he's probably going to be Roman, okay? Or, or of Roman descent or come from Rome. We know that because in Daniel 9.26, Daniel says that the man that will be the Antichrist will come from the same country that destroyed Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. And we know that Titus, uh, who was Roman, Destroyed, the, uh, destroyed Rome and destroyed temple in, 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 in AD 70. So, uh, you know, that's why all the time, you know, you get this, well, it could be the Pope. It could be the Pope. It could be this Pope. It could be this Pope. It is interesting, and I don't know if you guys have seen this in the media. Did you see just two weeks ago that uh, the existing Pope uh, um, invited the president of Iran to the Vatican? Did you see that? Uh, and when he invited him to the Vatican, they covered up all the art that might have been offensive to him. So any, any statues that, were, um, that might have had uh, scandalously uh, dressed women or nude women, those were all covered. Uh, and you can see that on the internet. But the one thing that you can't see, and it's really interesting, how many of you saw the interview with Sean Hannity and Jeb Bush after the Iowa caucus? Did you guys, did you see that? Right at the end of that interview, he says, Jeb Bush says, hey, Sean, you're Catholic, right? Sean goes, yeah, I'm Catholic. And he goes, well, look, man, he says, I, I love the Pope and I love a lot of the things that he's done. But he says, did you know that not only did uh, the Pope cover artwork that might've been offensive to this Islamic president, but he also covered art of Christ so that he wouldn't offend this president of Iran. Now, right there, that makes me go, are, are you kidding me? Like, really? First of all, I, I don't, like, the president of Iran, he's a terrorist. He's a terrorist. And he's in the Vatican. And understand that the Antichrist is going to be one that's going to that's bridge the gap in faiths. So he's going to bring everybody together. I'm not saying that this Pope is the Antichrist, but that's the kind of things that may happen with whoever whoever the Antichrist is. And I thought that that was really interesting. Now, if you look online, there is no stories about him covering any of the stuff on Christ. You'll see all kinds of stuff on him covering the other art as far as the Vatican is concerned. 
And, but understand, too, the Vatican is very powerful. And if there's anything negative that comes up on the Internet, they're pretty quick at, at, at being able to take that off. So um, Jesus, in Luke 17, gives us a clear picture of what the rapture is going to be like. And we see in verse 26, he just explains it here pretty clearly. When the Son of Man returns, that's Jesus, the world will be like the people were in Noah's day. It's going to be like Noah's day. In those days before the flood, the people enjoyed banquets and parties and weddings right up to the time Noah entered his boat and the flood came to destroy them all. And the world will be as it was in the days of Lot. People went about their daily business, eating and drinking, buying and selling, farming and building until the morning Lot left Sodom. Then fire and burning sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. Yes, it will be as business as usual, right up to the hour when the Son of Man returns. On that day, a person outside the house must not go into the house to pack. A person in the field must not return to town. Remember what happened to Lot's wife. Whoever clings to this life will lose it, and whoever loses this life will save it. And what he's talking about there, if you'll remember, Lot's wife, as she was going up the hill uh, away from Sodom, she was in love with the world. And, and God said, don't look back. Don't, don't you crave the world. And she did. And as a result of that, she was turned into a pillar of salt. So this is saying, love God. Don't love the world. That night, two people will be asleep in one bed. One will be taken and the other will be left. Two women will be grinding flour together at the mill. One will be taken, the other left. Verse 37, Lord, where will this happen? The disciples asked. And Jesus replied, just as the gathering of vultures shows there is a carcass nearby, so these signs indicate that the end is near. Uh, the KJV says, wheresoever the body is, thither will the eagles be gathered together. So in the sky, where the birds gather. Remember that 1 Thessalonians 4.17 said earlier, then together with them, we are still alive and remain on the earth, will be caught up in the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air and remain with him forever. We, go all, we all go up into, into the air to meet Jesus. That's why it's so important for us to know that those that we love know Jesus because one will be taken and one won't. Knowing Jesus is the only way to get to meet him in the clouds. Now, this is a pre-tribulation rapture. Let me tell you why I believe this. Notice that the scripture says that things are gonna be normal. Scripture says that it will be a world as it was in the days of Lot. People are going to be going about their business, eating and drinking, buying and selling, farming and building. Then the rapture is going to come. Things are not going to be normal in the tribulation. So there's no way that the rapture can come in the middle of the tribulation nor the end of the tribulation because things are not going to be normal. Now, I can't go into great detail with you what the different judgments are going to be in the tribulation. So what I did is I made you a four-page uh, list of all the judgments that God has against the earth and against the people in this four-page little thing. But what I want to do is I want to read just a few of these judgments so you'll see how bad the tribulation is really going to be. Seal number three, and I'm just going to hit some highlights. Revelation 6, 5 says, uh, the black horse, suddenly the economy is affected on a global scale as well as crop failure, making the agony of famine and hunger commonplace. It will cost one day's wages to buy a loaf of bread. That's not commonplace, right? It says in here that people are gonna be 
eating and drinking and having parties and farming. Seal four, the pale horse representing death in this seal. Many people die of various causes. Some are torn by beasts, some by plagues, some by hunger. In all, a quarter of the earth's population dies this way. Right now, there's 7 billion people. A quarter of that many people, of course, a bunch of us are gonna be raptured, but a quarter of that amount are gonna die. That's not life as normal. It's, it's, it's not commonplace. And these are early seals in the tribulation, okay? These are early judgments. Uh, seal six, earthquakes, volcanoes, and meteorites hitting the earth. Uh, people go, well, that happens now, but not like this because it's gonna turn the, everything completely dark. The world will go into complete chaos and the people are gonna be very fearful because the Bible says that you will not be able to see your hand in front of your face 24 hours a day. It's gonna be that dark. Now, are people gonna be having parties and going to weddings and farming when that's going on? No, no. Uh, Trump, trumpet uh, judgment number one, severe hail and fire mingled with blood. A third of the grass and trees are, are burned up, destroying nature and wildlife. Trumpet number two, a burning mountain falls into the sea, probably a super volcano, destroying sea creatures, the ships, and turning a third of the sea into blood. It's not gonna be commonplace. That's why we know that we're not gonna be here. Now, it seems to me like when you do a series like this, you always get the question, should I, should I go buy a bunch of food? Should I, should, I build, should I build a bunker? Should I sell off all my property? And you get these shows on TV now that, that are like the, the uh, what's it called? Where they're do, doomsday preppers. Yeah. If you're not safe, yes, do all of those things. <laughs> but if you're saved, no. Right? Live your life. Get married. Have kids, start businesses, go back to school, live your life. Because for us, it's going to be just like it is now. It's going to be life as normal. When you know about the rapture and you know about the end times, it doesn't mean you change the way you live. It just means you get ready and live for Jesus. That's, that's got to be so encouraging. Man, when I really, really got into this this time, and I've studied uh, end times a lot through the years, but man, when I really dug in this time, it is amazing to me what a, how, what a liberty I feel, what a freedom I feel now, because I know that Jesus is coming and I'm not going to have to be here for any of that stuff. I mean, that's awesome. And it was really cool last night we had this guy come up and he goes, did you get this material out of this book? And he had this book that was by this author, and he goes, and I'm like, no, that was one of the resources I used. He goes, it's like, it's like you're reading this book. It's like this, this scholar, like everything you're saying, this scholar's saying. And he says, this book was written in 1982. And I go, prophecy's prophecy, right? And it's been predicted for years. The unfortunate thing is most people just don't realize it. Now, in the days of Lot and Noah, there are four parallels between our generation and theirs. Okay, four similarities. The first is an immoral and violent world in rebellion to God. That's why God destroyed the earth when it came to Noah, because Noah is like the only good family in the whole earth, and God says, I'm done with it. I'm going to have to just destroy it all, and we're going to have to start over. So is our world filled with violence and immorality? You bet. The second parallel is a righteous remnant living for God. Okay, so in Lot's day, he had Lot and his family. In Noah's day, he had Noah and his family. With us, there are a lot of believers in the world right now that are the righteous remnant. That's the second parallel. The third parallel is a sudden removal of the righteous remnant. 
So cool. Lot was removed from Sodom. The angels came and removed him. Noah and his family were removed by a miracle of the flood. What Paul says throughout the book of Thessalonians, and it's the theme, is that we are not the children of wrath. We're not the children of wrath. Then when Paul talks about the rapture, he says, comfort each other with these words. This scripture is supposed to comfort us about the second coming of Christ. If we are going to go through the tribulation, there is no way we could be comforted. Right? There's no way we can read about this and go, but take heart, you know, because you might make it. In the days of Noah and Lot, the angels came to get Lot and his family. And here's what the angels told him. They said, we can't judge this place until you're out of here. Jesus said it would be just like that. That is so reassuring. What a gift. What a blessing. Scene three, and we're going to wrap it up here, is total world deception. And this is going to be once the church is removed. Luke 21, 34. Watch out. Don't let me find you living in careless ease and drunkenness and filled with the worries of this life. Don't let that day, the rapture, catch you unaware. As in a trap, for that day will come upon everyone living on the earth. Keep a constant watch and pray that if possible, you may escape those horrors and stand before the Son of Man. And for those that have been left behind in 2 Thessalonians 2, 9, he says, this evil man will come to do the work of Satan with the counterfeit powers and signs and miracles. He will use every kind of wicked deception to fool those who are on their way to destruction because they refuse to believe the truth that would save them. So God will send great deception upon them and they will believe all these lies. Then they will be condemned for not believing the truth and for enjoying the evil they do. Now, let's picture this just for a second. The rapture comes... We're all gone. How is the media going to explain that? <laughs> Says that Satan's going to use lies. How do you, what do you think he'll do? What do, you, what do you think the massive story will be? Jan. What, but what do you think? What is, what is the media set us up for already? What does Hollywood set us up for? Alien abduction, Right. <laughs> Now, we laugh at that, but what else would explain it? Every movie right now that's like a sci-fi movie is about aliens coming and either destroying New York or destroying Chicago or taking people and abducting them or whatever. So, hey, I would not be surprised if that's not the, the lead story when it happens. All these people... We're, we're abducted by aliens. 2 Thessalonians 2, 9, 12 says, the coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of Satan displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs and wonders. And in every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing, they perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and so that all, uh, all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. Mark 8.38 says, If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Now, as we read all of this and we talk, start thinking about those that we love that don't know the Lord, we need to be compassionate and have a heart for them. 
but we can't give up the truth in the scriptures to do that. We can't condone people's sinful choices just so they'll accept us, just so we'll have peace. Jesus was 100% grace, but he was also 100% truth. Now listen to this. Truth without grace is surgery without anesthesia. But grace without truth is a bottle with no medicine in it. So only grace and truth together can help anybody. And if we're a gracious people and are willing to give up the Bible to make a person feel better about themselves or their choices, we are wrong. The person that loves you the most is the person that tells you what you need to hear and not what you want to hear. We have a lot of people in our life that are like that. And I think for the sake of just having peace, we don't always be truthful. The world wants to accept everyone. Have you noticed that? It's like, come on, just accept everybody and be okay with everybody's choices. Because if we don't, then we're characterized, characterized as being closed-minded, judgmental hypocrites, right? And that is a move of the devil right there to make those that stand for the truth look stupid. Hey, that's what, that's what the media is so good about at making people that believe in pro, pro-life like, we're, we're radicals. We're stupid. Like, we, we're out of touch. For those that want to stand against gay marriage and want to stand for what real marriage is in the Bible, we're just, we're closed-minded. We need to get with it. And eventually, we'll come around to enlightenment where they are, right? That is a move of the devil. We are not supposed to judge people, like I said before, but we're supposed to judge the sin. One of the reasons that scripture was given to us is so that we can know the difference between right and wrong. We need to be like Jesus and operate 100% in grace, 100% in truth, and we need to love those that are making poor choices and rejecting the truth of God, but we should never compromise the truth of the word of God. We can't do that. Let me pray for you guys, and then we'll head out. God, we love you, and we thank you so much that... Uh, the rapture is coming, that we are a chosen generation to be able to experience that. And that Lord, we don't have to be here during the tribulation. And I uh, thank you, God, that uh, you've given us signs so we know the season. And I pray right now for those of us that have people right now in our lives that don't know you. I pray we, we lift those people up. In fact, right now, just think about a person that you know that doesn't know the Lord and just pray for them. Or maybe they're running from the Lord. So Lord, we give you our loved ones and we know that you love them. And I pray in Jesus' name that you would come upon them in such an incredible way that they would see the truth and that they would come to know you and come back to you so that we wouldn't have to have one person miss the rapture due to rebellion or poor choices. And I pray, Lord God, that you would just guide us. Give us the tools to be able to speak the truth and have 100% compassion and 100% truth with everything that we do. We thank you for grace. We thank you that uh, you've chosen us to do eternity with. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.